0: It's great to be here with you guys this morning uh, to kick off our Yes And series. If you don't know me, my name is Topher Ossel, and I've been on staff here in kids ministry for the last 10 years. If you have kids, you might have heard them call me gopher or loafer or tofu. Don't worry, I gave them permission. They're not just making fun of me. And I have to warn you uh, that this teaching that I'm about to share was originally given at basic last November. And Jeff Mickey ended up stealing—I mean, uh, using—some of it as inspiration for a piece of his Christmas message. So, if anything feels familiar, that's why. Uh, love you, Jeff, wherever he got off to. So, what is "yes and" all about? It's the particular, peculiar state of affairs we find ourselves in in life, where we can be in the midst of great distress, deep sadness, incredible hardship, and still have joy. Like the bare-naked lady said, I'm the kind of guy who laughs at a funeral. Can't understand what I mean? You soon will. Sorry, I've always wanted to work that into a teaching, and I don't get much opportunity with the kids. Uh, To talk about this properly, I think it's important to talk about the difference between joy and happiness. Happiness is an emotional, fleeting response to what's happening to us right now, and it can be squashed pretty easily by other emotions. Some of you were feeling perfectly happy until I made a joke about a song that's 25 years old and by a band with a provocative name. And happiness got replaced by derision or secondhand embarrassment or exhaustion. It can change just that quickly. Joy is something different. Joy is abiding, indomitable, and deeply tied to thankfulness. Christian joy comes from knowing who we are and whose we are. It is a result of hope for the future and a trust that ultimately we are in the hands of a loving, powerful, and good God. I want to talk this morning about a very specific moment in the story of the Hebrew people. But to do that effectively, I think there are some background details, some history, and some primers we need to take into account. So I'm going to start at the very beginning and just kind of give us a quick overview of the Old Testament up to the point where our story happens. Here we go. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth and everything in them. God created man and woman and he created them uniquely to do one thing that he hadn't created anything else to do. To bear the image of God. But people turned away from him And the relationship between humanity and God was broken. But God loved the world and had a plan to fix that relationship. And He chose to start that process about 4,000 years ago with one man named Abraham and his wife. Abraham and his wife Sarah were, not to put too fine a point on it, crazy old. But God promised them a child. And Sarah laughed, and God said, Yeah, that's his name. And they had a son and they named that son Isaac, which means laughter in Hebrew. Isaac grew up, and there was this whole thing with a sacrifice and a goat that was probably not super chill with Isaac and may have given him some issues because when he had children, Jacob and Esau, he made it very clear that he had a favorite. There was a bunch of family drama, and Jacob ended up running away for a large chunk of his adult life. Jacob, also known as Israel, There are a lot of double names in the Bible. It's just a thing you have to get used to. Uh, He continued the cycle of less than healthy family dynamics. And of his 12 sons, decided the second youngest was his favorite. That kid's name was Joseph, not the carpenter. He comes later. Uh, And he was just honestly a really good dude. His glaring character flaw being that he did not know how to read the room with his other brothers to the point where they threw him in a well and sold him to some passing slave traders, which I would hold against them, but I'm pretty sure my older brother would have done that to me if he had the opportunity to. So Joseph got sold in Egypt. There were a bunch of ups and downs for him, but eventually he was appointed the prime minister of all of Egypt and saved the whole country from a famine, saved his family from the same famine when they came begging for help, which led to the whole lot of them living in Egypt. Sometime later, the Israelites had been enslaved by the Egyptians, and Pharaoh got so concerned about the number of Israelites that he had all the baby boys thrown into the Nile River. One of those babies was famous Bible boy Moses. His mom and sister got him adopted by Pharaoh's daughter, and he grew up in the palace until he killed an Egyptian who was mistreating an Israelite slave and ran away. (laughs) Moses fled to Midian and provided some vigilante justice for the daughters of the high priest, got married to one of them, had a kid, became a shepherd. Then God showed up as a burning bush and sent him back to Egypt to free his people. I promise we're almost to the teaching part of this. Moses goes back, he reconnects with his brother Aaron, they go to Pharaoh, and you'll never believe it, but it doesn't go well. Pharaoh basically just makes all the work that the enslaved Israelites have to do harder, and then all heck breaks loose. God unleashes a series of plagues on Egypt to demonstrate his power, to decimate its economy, and to convince Pharaoh and the Egyptian people that they would be much better off without the Israelites in their land. The main water source of the kingdom turns to blood. By the time it's cleared, there are frogs everywhere, and the frogs are followed by gnats, and the gnats are followed by flies. After that, the Egyptian cattle start to die. A skin disease sweeps through the kingdom, causing boils and lesions on people and animals. Then Egypt is rocked by a killer hailstorm that destroys the flax and barley crop And Pharaoh almost gives in, but he changes his mind at the last second. Then came locusts to finish the wheat crop, putting Egypt roughly in the place they would have been 400 years prior. Had they not put Joseph in charge of the country. And after the locusts had gone, came three days of complete darkness, a whole country, Egyptian and Israelite sitting in the dark for three days. It must have felt like the end of the world. But Pharaoh was stubborn, so God wasn't done. He spoke to Moses and he told him to have every Israelite family paint their doorposts with lamb's blood. Because something altogether more terrifying was coming to Egypt. And it did. That night, every firstborn Egyptian died. And finally, Pharaoh let them go. So they packed up what possessions they had, they took their livestock, and they left. There was a brief hiccup where Pharaoh decided he was going to call take-backsies and chase them down, but God opened up a dry path across the Red Sea and got them out of there. And then we finally get to the part of the story I want to talk to you about. If you have a Bible with you, you can open it up to Exodus chapter 15, verses 19 and 20. It's less than 50 pages into my Bible, so it's right there pretty much at the beginning still. This is what it says. For when Pharaoh with his chariots and his horsemen went into the sea, the Lord brought back the waters of the sea upon them. But the people of Israel walked on dry ground in the midst of the sea. Then Miriam, the prophetess, the sister of Aaron, took a tambourine in her hand, and all the women went out after her with tambourines and dancing. I'll be honest with you, this is a verse that I missed for most of my adult life. It's just this tiny little line in the midst of one of the most famous stories in the Bible. But I don't want us to miss its significance today. The Israelites have just experienced something incredibly traumatic. They were there for the blood and the flies and the gnats through all of it. And at the end, they had to pick up their entire lives and leave the only place they had ever known to walk out into the desert. In the middle of all of that, there must have been this quiet moment where Miriam was packing. Maybe she moved a blanket and her tambourine fell to the ground, and she made the decision to pick it up and bring it with her. Not because she particularly felt like celebrating in that moment, but because she knew there was joy on the other side of all the feelings that she was having right then. Was she exhausted? Yes. And she was excited for the future. Was she afraid? Yes. And she chose to trust God. Was her face streaked with tears? Yes. And it was creased with a smile. Was she in the middle of incredible hardship? Yes. And she had joy. Now, I don't have proof that that scene exactly took place, but we're told that the tambourine exists, which means that the choice was made. So what does that mean for us? 3,500 years later, on the other side of the world, I think it means that not much has changed about people. We still live in the same yes and world. I mean, we just came out of a worldwide sickness that took years of our normal lives away, and we still celebrate and find joy in the midst of it. Just like in the beginning, yes, our relationship with God was broken, but he made a plan to fix it. Did Abraham and Sarah laugh at the idea that God would do what he said he would? Yes, and he came through anyway. Did Jacob make a bit of a mess of his family? Yes, and out of it, God brought the 12 tribes of Israel. Did it suck for Joseph to be sold into slavery? Yes, and through it, he saved his own family and an entire nation. Here at Orchard, we start every staff meeting by sharing stories of God at work. It's a chance for us to hear what God is doing in other ministries and lives around the church and in our communities. And at the end of last year, one of the stories that was shared was from our partners in Haiti. Haiti was and still is a country in crisis. The political powers vying for control of the country have resorted to using violent local gangs to police the streets. Schools are closed. Gas is at an all-time high. And all over the country, access to food is incredibly scarce. With all that's going on, God is still at work. Our partner shared a story of delivering food to a church. When he arrived, the choir was practicing. And as you can imagine, there were tears when he explained why he was there. The choir had just finished praying that God would send food before they began practice. Imagine being in that room. Those people had probably risked their lives just to get to the church, to worship together in the middle of what to us is absolutely unimaginable. Through starvation and fear, they are literally picking up their tambourine and choosing joy. But on a more personal level, we still face things every single day that break our hearts, exhaust, and deplete us. So how do we find joy in the midst of that? How do we carry our own tambourine? I'm sorry to say there isn't a one-size-fits-all answer to that question, but there are methods, and there is an answer, which without sounding too much like a Sunday school teacher, the answer is Jesus. If you've put your faith in Jesus, then you believe that he loves you enough to die for you. He wants what's best for you, He knows you better than you know yourself. And he has sent the Holy Spirit to live within your heart. It also means that you don't believe this life is all there is. That even death isn't the end. Because what God has planned for us is way more beautiful than we can imagine. That is a basis for abiding joy. All of this isn't to say that when we hit a wall, we will have a perfectly measured and joy-filled response. There's a saying in mission-based organizations about how often the mission needs to be restated to ensure that it doesn't start to drift. Vision leaks. And I think if we don't make the decision to top up our joy from time to time, it can leak too. Our yes and can turn into just a yes. And we end up only acknowledging the bad while losing sight of the hope that we have in Jesus. So I wanna share three strategies that I've found useful for myself in my life at different times to remind me where my joy comes from. Small disclaimer, none of what I'm about to say is meant to take the place of counseling. If you or someone you know are depressed, the most God-honoring thing that you can do is seek professional help. God is a healer. But he's also given us more tools than ever in history to fix things like brain chemistry so that we can see our world and circumstances more clearly. All right, number one, I want to encourage you to catalog your joys. If you find yourself in a season of life that's going really well, if you see a prayer get answered, if you have an experience with God that blows you away, write it down, talk about it with others. The story of the Exodus would become one of Israel's major reminders of God's provision in their lives. So much so that Passover became their most important holy day. One of their most important holy days. Maybe for you, this means getting a notebook, jotting down your prayers, and leaving space to come back and write out how God had shown up. Maybe you do it in Google Drive or using the Notes app on your phone, but I promise you, having a record of where you've seen God at work in your life, will feel invaluable when life gets hard. Catalog your joys and remind yourself what God's already given you. If you're in the middle of something hard right now, I want you to try this exercise. Get a piece of paper and start writing the names of things and people from your past and present that you're thankful for. When I'm at my lowest, it's hard to remember that I have a ridiculous amount of people in my life that I am so thankful for. At pretty regular intervals, my journals have pages just filled with names. Some people I see every day, some people I haven't talked to in years, and some I'll probably never see again. But the point is to remember the impact that they've had on me. There's joy to be found in those connections. Catalog your joys. Remind yourself what God's given you. And this is definitely a weirder one, because I haven't heard of anyone else doing this, but I like to write or think of you-could-have-just statements about God. I'll give you an example. God, you could have just made the universe. It's incredible, vast, beautiful in ways that we're still discovering, and Hank Green keeps explaining to me on TikTok. You could have just made it and stepped back and let it develop, and that would have been enough reason for me to worship you. But instead, you chose to be actively involved and invested in your creation. Thank you. For me, there's something incredibly soothing in reminding myself how far above and beyond God has gone in pursuit of all of us. These are just a couple of ways that I've found that help me carry my own tambourine and refocus on God when life wants to pull my attention completely onto everything that's going wrong. There are so many more, and over the next couple of weeks, the rest of the teaching team will be exploring how we do that not just for ourselves, but in community with one another. So I hope you don't miss those messages because we were never meant to walk through our yes and moments alone. Would you guys pray with me? God, thank you for never abandoning us to our hardships. Thank you for loving us through each and every moment. I pray this week that we would have our eyes open to what you're doing in our lives and in our communities right now, and that we could be reminded of what you've already done. Thank you for sending Jesus as the ultimate example of perseverance and love in the midst of suffering. Thank you for rescuing us from our sin and our brokenness. Help us live in the freedom that you bought with your own life. We pray all of this in the name above all other names. the name of your son, Jesus, amen.